This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. If you like the sweet science, get ready to talk boxing on the Gloved Fist podcast with top boxing writers Frank Letirzo and Jack Hirsch. Frank, a former amateur boxer out of Philadelphia, writes for NY Fights and can be seen on the Boxing Channel. Jack, an amateur boxer who competed in the New York Golden Gloves, was a six-term president of the Boxing Writers Association. And now, here's Frank Letirzo and Jack Hirsch. And we're back. Welcome to the Glove Fist Boxing Show. My name is Frank Letirzo, former fighter, part-time writer, full-time observer. And I am joined by co-host, six-term president of the Boxing Writers Association of America, coming to us live from Florida, Jack Hurst. Jack, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm great, Frank. That's some intro. We look good in that introduction, don't we? We just got to mention that I fought and won the Golden Gloves in Pennsylvania. I participated in the Golden Gloves in New York, much tougher tournament. Oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go yeah, with I, that. What? Well, hey, well, wait. A uh, one forty-seven, but no one wants to hear about. Um, That's a good weight, though. That, all right, that was a tough class. Let's get, let's get to the weekend to some real fighters, even though you were one. Uh, go ahead. Listen, who stole the weekend? There's are the better beef, sensational performance. Then the fight of the weekend, for sure, Joseph Parkick, Derek Chisora, had me on the edge of my seat, even though it was a great one-sided fight. The scoring was a little closer than it should have been, I felt, but it didn't matter at the end. Parker got that unanimous decision. What grabbed you the most this weekend, Frank, amongst those two? Hey, I'm amazed at how tough Derek Chisora is and how willing he is. It's just a shame that he's just, he's not a little bit more sophisticated in his attack because Parker's beatable. Parker fought the smarter fight. I thought Andy Lee did a great job. And Jack, before we really get into that fight, this is what's so nice when you see that. Neither guy can ever be the champ. Parker had the title for a little bit. He'll never get it back. Chisora never had it. will never get it. But when you see these guys that are high ranked and they fight each other, like back in the days with the Lyles and Shavers and Buster Mathis and Lyle and Quarry, they really make for good fights and they keep the sport going. And that was a great fight between two pretty good guys. I hope Chisura retires. He took a pounding. I don't worry what is left to prove. He said he's going to keep on fighting. He's almost 40. Where's he going unless they're paying him a lot of money? But Parker was the smarter fighter. He boxed better. He got he handled himself when he was in trouble more. You can tell Chisora can really whack. The better guy won. And we'll see where Parker goes. I'm sure he thinks or hopes that he'll get a shot at one of the title holders. Well, before talking about Joseph Parker, I just want to say with Derek Chisora, enough is enough after. Well, he can still fight. I'm going to give him his due. He can compete against any heavyweight and maybe extend them. You throw him in with Yuri, maybe even Yusick. And look what he did against Yusick his last He won fight. five out of 12 rounds, right. It was a close fight. Maybe you put him in against Fury again. They fought twice in the past. Maybe he gives him a fight, but I don't care. He's taken too much punishment, Frank. It's not going to show up on his, you know, CAT scans right now in all probability, but down the road, enough is enough. I mean, I didn't like Chisora's body language during the fight. He came back and actually put himself in a position to win, not on points, to maybe get Parker out of there. Parker didn't show resolve itself. Now, as far as Joseph Parker went, you know what I was thinking about in the early rounds, Frank? Wow, Joseph Parker's improved a lot. He's a lot better than the fighter who got outpointed by Anthony Joshua a while ago. 
lost to Dillian White, you know, in some other fights. You know, he's really an improving heavyweight. But then, of course, he doesn't get Chisora out of there. Chisora comes back, makes a fight out of it. And we think, okay, maybe Parker's improved, but he's closer to being the same, you know, Parker as before. And uh, listen, Parker... He's not a finisher, Jack. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have that DNA. And that's the difference between the good guys and the near greats. Parker is good. He's solid. He doesn't do anything really well, but he does a lot of things pretty good. But he just he's not a finisher. He's not a big puncher. He can box a little bit when he wants to. I thought he beat Andy Ruiz in a good fight. Again, Parker put himself in position that maybe he'll get a shot at Usyk or somebody like that. He could never beat Fury. Usyk would turn him inside out. Other than that, who, I mean, who, who who's left to fight for, you know, well, to get a belt? I mean, Parker against Andy Ruiz. That would be a good fight. Parker against Deontay Wilder if he wants to continue boxing. Yeah, and that's a good fight. Very interesting fight. So Parker kind of heads the second team. If this were team sports, he would be an elite backup, okay, who you wouldn't hesitate to put in on short notice if he was in shape against another elite heavyweight, okay? And who knows, with the sanctioning bodies, maybe they strip one of the champions and Parker gets in one of those fights. I mean, there's a path to the title for him still, but uh, obviously we want to see, you know, Usyk and Fury, that fight, and, and then Anthony Joshua in the mix. That's really it's a just, big three. It's just hard. To, let's just say he got a shot against Usyk, or Fury. It's hard to make a case. What does he bring to the ring to beat them? He's I'll not a great he puncher. Frank, Chisora more decisively, Parker or Usyk? Chisora's last fights were against Usyk and Parker. Parker did a better job. If you didn't know Usyk's reputation, you'd say Parker was the better fighter than Usyk based on their performances against Chisora. Okay, you're right, Jack. But we, but, but that's that's a little bit of a matchup thing there. If you go by that, but against look, look what happened when they both fought Joshua. Usyk totally did what he wanted with Joshua. Parker really couldn't do that. He was kind of waiting for Joshua to handle them, hand him the fight, make a mistake, which he never made. But the thing with Parker, at that level, I think he's a tweener. By and again, saying if you're Tyson Fury and you're going to fight Parker, what scares you? What do you want to take away from him? He can't outbox you. He's not stronger. He's not a puncher that you have to worry about. He's quick, but he's not hes not super quick where he can't be dealt with timing. And Fury's fast himself. And then if you put him in against Usyk, yeah, they're a little bit closer in size. But Usyk's just better all the way around. And he would nullify Parker. And he would beat him going. And he would beat him moving away from him. Either way, I just don't think he would match up with him. He's a good old alternate opponent now if for whatever reason the big three can't get together and fight one another you know parker waiting in the wings is a viable opponent that's all i'm saying okay he'd he's be a, a good opponent for deontay wilder if if wilder's going to continue to fight he'd be a great opponent for wilder to come back and measure himself against because mm. if wilder stopped him that would be big Okay, what about let's let's drop down a couple of divisions, okay? Now with the bridge weight, it's more than a couple of divisions. It's bridge weight, <laughs> cruiserweight, light heavyweight. I don't know my counting bridge weight yet, because I think it's a bit of a farce, you know. Uh, at the time for the time being, maybe I'll see more merit in it as we go along. But for now, I'm not really quite willing to accept it from my end. Because you could create any division and any name going forward. It hasn't uh, caught on yet. I'm, I'm, I'm the same place you are. Arda Better Beef, okay? Who's, he's the consensus best light heavyweight in the world, okay? You speak to the majority of people. He's the alpha they, in the division. Yeah, he's the guy who they would say, you know, he had a tough challenge of Marcus Brown, the United States Olympian, very, very, very talented. And Marcus Brown gave him a good argument in the early rounds that but you can make ahead. a case after five rounds, Brown was ahead. Right. And Better Beef suffered a bad gash. And actually, that was dangerous, even though it was, it was an accidental butt. 
Imagine if, if they immediately stopped the fight with Brown and went to the cards. Brown would have actually gotten a fight at one point. I, don't, I never felt beat. they were going to stop it. But, yes, if they did it that way, he would have been ahead. But then Better Be kind of asserts himself, really takes it to Brown and poses himself on it and showed why he's a great fighter who stopped every opponent he's fought. And uh, and got a nice stoppage. But you want to know something with Better Beef? He's he has a bit of a novelty. He has business within his own division. Okay, like we see on the screen, he's got to beat Joe Smith and Bivol. Those are two fighters, you know, that are that are decent matches to make. I right. Mean, Beef would be favored, but Bivol himself is unbeaten. He fought. Uh, the week, the week before last, he looked pretty, you know, he's been looking impressive, not like a world beater, but getting the job. I thought he progressed a little bit more, but you're right. But he's solid. He's solid. Okay. So better beef doesn't just show up or form. And it's not an automatic win by showing up because if, if for whatever reason, better beef's not ready, maybe Bivol could peck away and win a decision, but you got to assume you know, better beef is ready and it's going to be a little too strong for, for Bivol. And then there's Joe Smith. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because Joe Smith is fighting uh, Callum, uh, Callum, Callum, Callum Smith, right? Callum Smith. I'm sorry. Callum Smith on January 15th at the Turning Stone Casino in New York. And Smith is a puncher. Okay. So, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen. And Joe Smith had his last fight canceled because he came down with the COVID virus and that weakened him for a while. And there's no telling how that throws a guy's training camp off. It could really throw him off where he doesn't have the build up he'd like to have. He's not in quite the peak form, even though he'll be in shape. So you never know what could happen, uh, you know, with that. Uh, Smith had, let's see on the screen, Smith had, a scheduled fight and better be backed out. I think that's Joe DeGuardia, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, Joe Smith's promoter, because he said that before. But uh, listen, better Beef's going to take the best fights now. You know, the big talk, and you had mentioned this, Frank, that people would really like to see that would go through the roof. Canelo keeps talking about moving up. Oh, he's going to move up to Cruiserweight, win a title. He doesn't have to move that far. Him against better Beef. Wouldn't that be perhaps boxing's biggest super fight you could make with the possible exception, of course, of Fury and Yusuf? Let's forget the heavyweights a moment. You tell me, Frank, is that fight in a certain sense even bigger than Crawford and Spence? Forget about Crawford and Spence because Spence is a complete wimp when it comes to challenges. I don't have much respect for Errol Spence in that regard. But would Canelo actually take that fight with Better Beef? You tell me. Would Canelo take it? Would Canelo? I think I think he would. But here's the: I just want him to do it soon, Jack, and not wait for Better Beef to get older because that'll be the excuse. Better Beef is on a short window as far as his peak. He's what thirty-seven. We don't know how much longer he has. He hasn't had many fights as a pro. He had a big amateur career. But you're right. If Canelo fought Better Beef and he beat him, we would have to look at Canelo in a totally different vein. And, Jack, here's the thing. I posted a couple things after the fight and about Better Beef and Canelo. And it was unbelievable how one-sided or how there was no middle ground. Canelo hasn't fought anybody. Once Better Beef hits him, it'll be over. And then on the other side, Better Beef is slow, plotting, predictable. Canelo's too good. And it would be a one-sided fight. I think it would be an interesting fight. And here's the thing, Jack, that Canelo brings. And some people overlook this. Look at James Tony. okay? He had some tough calls as a middleweight. But he had a concrete chin. He moves up to light heavyweight, cruiserweight, and even fought heavyweights. And what happened? Whenever the smaller guy comes up, he is the better technician and fighter. But he has to worry about getting hit. Tony had a cast iron chin, and what happened? He goes on and he fights the scene Rockman, Samuel Peter, Yurov, 
at cruiserweight, and he was real good. Canelo brings that to the ring if he fought better beef. He is the better technician. He's the better fighter. He's quicker. That fight will come down to one thing. Is better beef too strong for him? We'll never know until they fight. But Canelo has the style, and he has the style matchup, I think, that would favor him. I just don't know if he's big enough or strong enough, and that would be the whole intrigue. Well, better beef would be coming right to Canelo. I couldn't imagine him boxing, keeping away. Exactly. And better beef, 30, 37 years of age or not, he's in his prime right now. He's in his prime. I don't want to hear age, he's too old. Listen, if I'm going to throw the age argument, I could say Mayweather was 37 years old when he fought Canelo. See, he was past his prime, but he wasn't past his prime. At 37, I thought he was in his prime. He had a Mayweather had a long prime. You can make a case he had a prime right, right, longer right, than anybody. One is age itself. It's easy to point to later on. You have to see where a guy is at a certain point in his career. But listen, the the, the formula I think Canelo is going to be following is what you mentioned a while ago. Wait till a guy's beatable. That's why I think Gennady Golovkin's now in his radar. Gennady Golovkin is very beatable for Canelo right now. I would be absolutely shocked if Gennady Golovkin, if he fought Canelo, could come up with the same type of effort he did in there. No, I, I don't think so either. I don't think so. I think Canelo stops him, okay? And, you know, in the case of James Tony, some of those heavyweight fights were passed his prime, like when he fought Hasim Rockman. I was in Atlantic City when they fought a draw there. You know, Tony, even at an old age, he didn't get hit that much, you know, as I can, from what I can recall. He was still a technician. So you mentioned a good point. They move up and wait, but they oftentimes bring their skill with them. You're right. If they had the Tony chin, they survived. Tony did. physically, a good number of them, you know, the smaller guys. But uh, think yeah. about it. Look what Joe just wrote. Tony fought at 160, and he has way, he weighed 260 for some fights. And, you know, he and Canelo aren't that much different in height. Not that Canelo will ever go that high, but Canelo, Jack, Canelo has that cast iron chin. And against a guy like Better Beef, we see that he's quicker. He gets off better. But Better Beef is a tough night for anybody, and that would come down to physicality. There's no way that I could see Canelo probably stopping better beef, but I could see him mixing boxing and slugging enough and picking his spots, or I could see him taking rounds and winning seven to five if he doesn't get stopped or dropped. Well, notice in most of Canelo's fights, most of them, he comes on in the later rounds. That's where he wins the fight. You could stay with him for a while, but to stay with him for the duration of the fight is a very, very difficult... You mean better beef? Uh, no, I'm talking about Canelo. His opponents have a hard time staying with him for the fight. And that, and that could work to better beef's advantage as well because he might be able to match that intensity over the long term because better beef wears you down as the fight goes along and Canelo wears you down as the fight goes along. So you kind of wonder, would it maybe be a little bit tactical? That's if better beef is thinking too much. And Canelo... Better beef, Jack... Better Beef, he's a pressure fighter, but he's not a real swarmer. He's not a volume puncher or a life taker with one shot, but he's heavy-handed. His aggression is a little more nuanced than people think. He's determined. He has he he does carry his power, but his pressure is a tight pressure that when he puts it on you, it wears you down mentally and physically. And he would definitely bring the fight to Canelo, but at the same time. Better beef can be hit. He is not, he is, you know, you don't catch him with clean shots and combinations, but you can get him, you can hit, you can catch him clean and you can disrupt his aggression. Now, could Canelo hurt him? If you hit anybody clean, you could hurt him. It, it, that's why it's an intriguing fight. Yeah, Marcus Brown actually could hit very hard and he did hit better beef a lot. But it didn't leave much of an impression on Better Beef. No, never, it never deterred him. You know, just staying with Better Beef in the ring, it wears you down. He's landing all these big shots. And eventually, Marcus Brown, you know, enough was enough. I mean, he did the right thing. He could have gotten up from the last knockdown. 
but wisely, you know, he stayed down at that. No, he knew it was over. Uh, yeah, yeah. He uh, knew it was over. There was absolutely. he would have gotten really beaten up if he would have continued there. But Frank, you always do an anniversary spotlight fight. Okay. Uh what do we have this week? The anniversary spotlight fight. The fight is the greatest fighter of all time, Sugar Ray Robinson, winning his welterweight title, the first title he won 75 years ago tonight. 75 years ago, exactly, tonight. Listen, I'm going to say something about Sugar Ray Robinson, and then we're going to discuss a little bit his fight with Tommy Bell. I mean, I never saw his fight with Tommy Bell. That's not on film, you know, Sugar no. Ray Robinson's fight with Tommy Bell. So you can't go to YouTube. You can't see it. No argument for me at all. If you want to call Sugar Ray Robinson the greatest fighter pound for pound to ever live, I'm not going to argue if I was going to sit down and have a list and I've had lists in the past and I've had them there, but it's people are making it like it is automatic that if you have the, if you mention someone else, like it's as if you have the audacity, like I remember Lou Duva once telling me, Oh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Roy Jones, if you want to compare them to Sugar Ray Robinson, it was like man against boy. I mean, come on. If Sugar Ray Robinson and Sugar Ray Leonard fought at the peak of their careers of welterweight, I'm sure it would be nip and tuck. It would be a nip and tuck fight. The talent level, I'm sure, is very close, you know. But if you want to look at accomplishments, that's another matter. And listen, the Tommy Bell fight's an example. That He fought Tommy Bell twice. That was the second of their two fights. He beat him before. That was for the vacant welterweight title. And Sugar Ray Robinson was finally getting his chance to fight for a world title. And he got knocked down in the second round. I'm assuming it was a flash knockdown. Any fighter can get dropped. Anyone. He got dropped with a left hook. It could happen to anyone. And Sugar Ray Robinson was only knocked down a handful of times in a 25-year career. A handful of times. Which shows you he had not only great skill, but a great chin. And he... and. And Customata used to say the thing that made fighters like Robinson and Muhammad Ali so great wasn't their skill level. It was their mental and physical toughness. Sugar Ray Robinson didn't look physically tough, but boy, was he physically and mentally tough. You he know? was a killer, Jack. Oh, he yeah. often said that he hated violence, but if you watch him fight, you'd never know that. He has some of the most brutal knockouts in the history of the sport. Now, you talk about Robinson being a guy that no one could live up to or it, it would be a blowout. Nobody measures up to him. I don't quite agree with what Duva said, but I think there's a little bit more of a gap than what you're saying because I love Sugar Ray Leonard. One, probably the best fighter of my lifetime, maybe excluding Ali. Jackie fought 40 times. Robinson fought 200. That's why I don't like to make a comparison who was great. I understand that, Jack, yeah. but what if Robbins, what if Leonard had to fight Lamada six times and Gavilon twice and all the guys that Robinson went through? What would his record yeah, look like? Robinson At Robinson's peak, Leonard. he was 129, 1-1 one and one with 87 knockouts, and the only loss was to a middleweight who nobody else would fight. He spotted that guy 15 pounds and beat him five out of six times. I agree with you. Listen, that's why if you anyone who says Sugar Ray Robinson was the greatest fighter pound for pound of all time, he's the consensus pick. He's the consensus pick in the way if we talk NFL and I say, well, who's the greatest running back of all time? We automatically have to say it's Jim Brown. It's like we can't put anyone else ahead of him. If it's hockey, we have to say Wayne Gretzky. If it's no, I don't have to say Wayne Gretzky. It's Bobby Orr. If it's if if it's over over Gretzky's career, if you look at everything he did, and I throw the stats at you, then it's hard to argue against the stats. Just like you mentioned the stats for Robinson. If, if I say quarterbacks, you have to say Tom Brady, even though they may maybe there were greater quarterbacks a few than he was. Maybe Dan Marino was better than him. Maybe Peyton Manning was. Maybe Joe Montana was. But, you know, something about we put a guy in a certain position. And now, listen, 
Sugar Ray Robinson and the Tommy Bell fight, okay? I think two of the judges scored it 10 rounds to five for him, and I think the other eight rounds to six and one even, okay? So, But the point is, Tommy Bell was competitive with Sugar Ray Robinson. Had that been Sugar Ray Leonard in the ring that night, Sugar Ray Leonard may very well have beaten Sugar Ray Robinson. Benitez may have, Hearns may have, on a given night. Now, if you want to look at the guy's work over his career, I, I agree Sugar Ray Robinson was number one. He was number one, but I don't want to hear this, that no one was in this league. As far as Sugar Ray Leonard's 40 fights, I know you love Sugar Ray Leonard. Well, two factors. One, he had to miss some time because of the eye injury. But number two, different eras. If Bernard Hopkins was fighting in the 1940s, B-Hop would have had 150 fights. In the, your Jack, but you have to use, you know, you used Gretzky's numbers to break the tie with Orr because Orr played 10 years and Gretzky played 20. Jack, let's just look at it this way. Two things matter. What you brought to the ring and who you fought. We can't question Ray Leonard's opposition, but name another fighter. And I don't care the weight. Name another fighter who could go forward and backwards sideways, had dynamite in both hands, was a great finisher, scored one-punch knockouts from either side, could box, could punch, could counter, could attack, had the heart of a lion, a chin where he was only stopped because he passed out against Joey Maxim, the hottest day of the year in June when he fought for the light heavyweight title. What other fighter could you put next to him and check all the boxes and say, hey, you know, this guy's pretty close to Robinson, what did Sugar Ray Leonard do as good as Robinson? I am just saying, had the two of them fought in their prime, odds are very strong. It would have been a nip and tuck fight. It would have been very close every time they would have fought. Every Jack, okay, I'll give you that. But since they're never going to fight, and half the fun of sports is debating different what-ifs, since they're never going to fight, and so we, neither one of us can be right or wrong, then we have to go down and check and see, okay, if we're going to break them down as fighters, what does this guy bring to trouble this guy and vice versa? Now, to me, Leonard is one of the exceptions where it's very close. In fact, I bro, when they rated the top welterweights in history, Sheree Robinson was one. Sugar Leonard was two. And again, Leonard was that great. But when you're talking about Robinson, I just don't see any case for any other welterweight to beat him. And if we had to go, if we had to go from top to bottom, I think Sugar Ray Robinson, and think about this, Leonard is number two, but I think there's a bigger gap between Robinson and the second guy than there is say, between Ali or Joe Lewis, Duran and Benny Leonard. I just think Robinson, there's just, we've never seen anybody like him, Jack. Imagine if, imagine if Muhammad Ali could hit like Joe Frazier. That's what you have in Robinson. Plus, Robinson punched the body. He punched in combination. He could set you up. He was a killer. Once he got in the ring, he was an unbelievable finisher. I love Ray Leonard, but I just can't make a case for anybody over well, Robinson. So to me, to me, the debate begins with who's the second greatest fighter ever. Robinson never lost at welterweight, always had to fight bigger guys to beat him. He beat great fighters, and he did it in so many ways. I just think he's, he's the greatest package of fighter this sport has yet seen. Okay, well, Robinson had style. He had charisma. That he had that too. Good. Was he necessarily a greater fighter than Harry Grepp, who didn't have the charisma, didn't have the style? But listen, Grepp fought 45 times. And when you know argument about Robinson being number one, I'm just saying I get annoyed when people dis are dismissive of all the other great fighters if you want to compare them to him. And they'd say, no, not even a comparison. I don't See, Jack, I think that guy bought what he brought to the ring and who he fought. Greg probably has the best resume of any boxer who's ever lived. 
but he was more of a one-dimensional guy, like an Armstrong, and he really had to attack. And if he couldn't push you back, well, I'll tell you he this, had problems. Customado, custom, you mentioned Armstrong. Customato thought Henry Armstrong was the greatest fighter to ever live. That was Customato's view. But let me say one thing about the Robinson Tommy Bell fight. We don't have a film of it. Film of it. I have a feeling, just a feeling, Frank. I don't know whether you agree. There's no way known for sure that Robinson waited so long for that title shot. You get the feeling he may have been a little uptight once he got it. And Bell, because Bell did trouble him in the early rounds. Robinson went down. And I have a feeling he went down more because he was unfocused. It was early. You know, it was just one of those things. He got caught. Yeah, right. Got caught, caught. It right. happens to anyone. And then he started taking control in the middle rounds. And then he basically had control of the fight, you know, the whole way. But I'm going to tell you what impresses me most about Robinson, okay? But the fights he lost when he was way past his peak late in his career, the losses started piling up. But they would be against rated fighters when Robinson right. was through. And he always went the distance when he was washed up in his 40s. He always went the distance against world-rated fighters. Because he, he was, was a pretty boy, Jack, his toughness is always overlooked. And I'm gonna oh, I mean, you. it's the same with Ali. Ali was the kind of a pretty boy. People don't realize how tough he was. Robinson even took it out to the nth degree even more. Again, like you said, nobody. He was only stopped the one time. He, had, he just had everything. If you had to make the perfect fighter. It's Robinson. And, and, it, yeah. and here's the one negative about Robinson. Let's point this out. I've had guys tell me, well, he wasn't great defensively. Actually, he was pretty great defensively. And here's why. Because Robinson did not want to win by decision. Unlike Mayweather or Whitaker, he wanted to hurt you and knock you out. Well, in order to hurt you and knock you out, I have to put myself in danger, and you can hit me back. So Robinson is going to take a few more shots than Mayweather, but at the same time, he did much more damage. So you can say, well, he wasn't as good defensively. That's that's fair, but it's because he was such an offensive-minded fighter. And he had some great highlights. People predominantly are going – if they have to point to a specific Robinson moment, it's going to be when he – Won the middleweight title from Jake Lamont in the 13th round, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago, when he pounded him from pillar to post in that 13th round, and then they stopped it. But there were two other highlights. Of course, there was the uh, perfect punch against Gene Fulmer. I mean, classic six-inch punch to knock out a guy with one of the greatest chins in boxing history. And by the way, right, they, they fought after that. They fought to a draw. Robinson should have gotten the decision. He totally I'm won that fight. That was in a phone booth, and he still won. Right. He Robinson should have been given that decision against Fulmer after. That's the one they called the draw. But I think the most sensational moment, the greatest moment of Robinson's career. I know you're going to say. Right. The rematch of Randy Turpin. I he mean, was losing in that fight. Well, he, he was, well, he was no, behind. He was on points. No, no, no. He was ahead on points, but he'd gotten caught. And in those days, I, not, you're, I, that's right. He was cut. That's right. He was ahead. He, he had the cut. That's but if right. If you get butted in those days, Frank, you lose the fight if you get cut on the butt. They don't go to the scorecards where Robinson would have been declared the winning. He was given one more round and he opened up with everything he had. It was do or die and he got Turpin out of there. I mean, what is Was that a killer man. shot and instinct? Oh. The way once he once he saw that it could be over, sort of like Hagler with Hearns, that yeah. switch was turned on and he, I felt sorry for Turpin. The way he had him against the ropes and boom, boom, with those right hands. You, you name three of Robinson's highlights. There's no doubt about it. But the thing about the LaMotta, I'm sorry, the former knockout was did you notice how he set him up he moved around the ring and he hit him with a right to the body three times he moved three different spots in the ring he moved he set him up and he had him thinking right hand and that's when he turned that left hook over only time robin uh former was ever stopped uh, only I time it was a spotlight uh fighter you know the week we're going to talk about emil griffith 
and I'm going to lead it in with Robinson. I'm going to tell you why. Because, uh, no, not Emil Smith, boxer spotlight, Emil Griffith. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Our producer, Mac, loves Joe Smith. Joe Smith is always on his mind. so He He can spell Smith, too. Yeah, yeah. But listen, I'm speaking to Gil Clancy. He was Emil Griffith's uh, trainer trainer and manager. And he basically, Emil loved him. They were so, so close. What a partnership they had. And their system was how we are. But, But I'm talking to Gil Clancy after Emil Griffith's career is over. How would you rate Emil Griffith amongst the greatest welterweights of all time? And he said he was the second greatest welterweight of all time, in my opinion, next to Sugar Ray Robinson. <laughs> so he put Robinson ahead of his own guy. You know what I mean? So I kind of, it's a, it shows you how Sugar Ray Robinson was revered by everyone. And even the, the great Emmanuel Stewart, when I told him, you know, Tommy Hearns may have had the style to actually beat Ray Robinson head to head because of the jab. And he said, you know, I agree. But Sugar Ray Robinson was, you know, greater than my guy, Tommy Hearns. But my guy may have been able to beat him. That was but just the idea that all these guys defer to Ray Robinson as being, you know, the best over guys who they work very closely with during their career says an awful lot. But with that said, Emil Griffith at welterweight, he would have given Sugar Ray Robinson all he could have handled, Frank. That would have been a tough Jack, I, Sugar Ray look, Robinson. I am a huge Emil Griffith guy, okay? And I think that Leonard probably beats Griffith. I think that Robinson beats him, but I think they both know that they're in a fight. No doubt about it. And to our, to our reader there, or one of the guys there says, Napoli's handled Griffith like a sparring partner. Well, that's not totally true. He clearly won the fight, but here's the one thing you're leaving out, sir. Emil Griffith, after he lo- after he won the middleweight title, uh, where he beat Dick Tiger for the middleweight title, defended it against Benvenuti, fought Benvenuti three times, and he went back down to welterweight, and he lost a little bit when he did that. If you notice, after he lost to Naples, he went back up because he was weakened from that. He was 31 years old. He wasn't an old man. But you can't go from welterweight to middleweight and then go back down to welterweight like he did, and it took something out of him. But I think Uh, Griffith clearly was the better fighter than Jose Naples. Griffith was one of my favorites, but uh, no, you, did you say Griffith was clearly better than Napoli's? I would take Griffith, yes. Napoli, don't sell Napoli short during his prime. I think at the time Griffith fought Napoli's, Napoli's was at his absolute zenith. He was. Absolute peak. And he may have beaten Emil during his prime at Welterweight that evening. Okay, I'm not selling it short. I agree with you, Frank. I don't know how Griffith was physically feeling going down, you know, in weight. But let me tell you something. He not only went from middleweight down to to welterweight, he weighed something like 144, as I recall. He He weighed two, three pounds less than he even had to. Oh, for the for the Napoli's fight. The Napoli's fight. Yes. That's the crazy part about it too. And see, that's what happens because you worry so much about making the weight when you haven't been there. You come in too late, and I yeah. and that and that that was part of what happened there. He got caught in between weight like that. Sugar Ray Leonard did the same thing when he went down and he fought Terry Norris at, at junior middleweight after he fought Hagler and Hearns above one sixty or at one sixty. He drops down to one fifty four. He doesn't have it. His body can't make that weight anymore because now he's older. Let me tell you. Jack, Jack, listen to this. Listen to the guys on Griffith's resume. 85 and 24, two draws, 23 knockouts. These are these are these are the I name of Parkey's fault. A lot of the losses are late in guys' careers. Exactly. Exactly. He went. I think he went after he beat Benny Briscoe. I think he went like eight and fifteen after nineteen seventy four seventy five. But he fought. Listen to these guys: Randy Sandy, Gaspar Tega, and many of them more than once. Denny Moyer, Florentino Fernandez, Yama Bahama, Benny Kid Perret, Don Fulmer, Rodriguez, 
Holly Mims, Hurricane Carter, Dick Tiger, Joey Archer, Benvenuti, Gypsy Joe Harris, Kitten Hayward, Napolis, Tom Boggs, Ernie Lopez, Carlos Monzon, Armando Muniz, Jean-Claude Boudier, Tony Mundini, Tony Licata, Benny Briscoe, Vito Inafermo, and Alan Minner. Look at that resume. I, I want to, I'll tell you, I want to, before getting to particular Griffith fights, I want to tell you a couple of personal stories. Griffith was one of my boyhood idols. I had a few boyhood idols. He was absolutely one of them. After he retired, I was at the, uh, one of the writer Ron Ross's home. He later wrote the, you know, the biography on Emil Griffith's life. And he invited me over for a pay-per-view show. Okay. And I'm sitting there. I get there and he says, why don't you sit next to Emil? Emil was there. I'm like, what a thrill. I'm hanging out with Emil Griffith, you know, watching the fights one night. But a better one was I got to know Emil through the times he come to ring eight and the people and, you know, person who would look after him, his guardian, Lewis, there. And right. the American Association for the Improvement of Boxing had a golf tournament. And they asked me, could I drive Vito Antifermo, who I was friends with, and a meal to the golf tournament, you know, uh, there. And I drove, so I picked them up, and Vito Antifermo absolutely idolized Emil Griffith. I knew that from when Vito was an amateur. And later he fought him at the Garden when Vito was on the way up and Emil was on the way down. And Vito wins a decision there. And we're in the car, and because Vito loved Emil so much, he kept joking with him, kept ribbing him, ribbing him, ribbing him. Why did you hit me so hard when we fought? Why did you hit me in the ribs? I had to keep an ice pack on for a full week on my <laughs> ribs. You have to hit me. And, they, and the, the TV guide had just come out to, to I don't want to say celebrate, celebrate would be an awful word, to have us recall the Griffith Perret fight, okay? Griffith Perret. Uh, and Emil was on the cover of TV Guide, and TV Guide was iconic at the time, okay? And they were in the car, and Emil wasn't amused by Vito's joking, okay? But he didn't realize Vito was doing it out of love. Vito's in the front with me, Emil sitting on the back. And finally, you know, me, I added in my two cents to instigate. Finally, I turned to Emil and I say, why did you hit him so hard in the ribs? He idolized you. Emil exploded. He said, I was just doing my job. Blah, 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 blah. Emil didn't even remember what happened in the fight, but he'd had enough. And they're arguing at a streetlight, yelling at one another, Emil and Vito, because Vito's feelings are hurt that Emil's mad at him because he loved Emil. And people are looking on the street, and I'm thinking, if they only had an idea who was in this car. That is no so idea funny. Who was in this car? But Emil Griffith. Listen, his long career, you just mentioned this record, Frank, but the two, you know, he was stopped twice during his career. What The first round stoppage against Hurricane Carter, and that kind of made Carter, in a way, it, it made him a mega celebrity. That was at the Spectrum in Philly. Oh, that was, I, that was in Pittsburgh. What? Was in it was in PA, okay. Oh, okay, I Pittsburgh. thought. Right, right. What he was I thinking there? Yeah, it was in So Pittsburgh. go ahead. But he caught him, he caught Emil Griffith cold, okay, in the first round. I'd say, Frank, if they fought 30 more times after that, Carter never nails him like that. I agree totally, Jack. He caught him cold. He caught him and cold. And then the other time he was stopped was by Monzone in the um the 14th, the 14th round. round yeah, yeah. In Monzone's second or third title defense. Right, leg pains went up uh, in that fight, the 14th throw with Emil. But then they had a rematch. And, and, and he gave Monzone a tough fight. He took him the distance. Right. I thought Monzone deserved the decision. There are people out there who think Emil won the fight, too. No. He put himself within range. But I thought the decision in Monzone's favor. I had him up nine rounds to six. That was No, I agree. I, I, thought, I thought that Monzone won. But the fact that it... What thirty four years old, he could go the distance with Monzone at that age, and Monzone was at his peak. And the fact that he could go the distance says a lot about you know just how great Griffith was. Oh yeah, I mean, how I describe Emil Griffith. If I had to describe him, I, I'd say you could wake him up in the middle of the night, and he'll go the distance with King Kong. I mean, a pro's pro. 
you know what I haven't gotten a chance to see, Frank, that someday I'm going to watch the... And you can't score his fights with Louis Rodriguez now in a fair way because you know what happened. They fought four, you know, really close fights. Rodriguez won. Louis Rodriguez, a unanimous decision in one. And Emil won three split decisions in the other. And you just think, what would Louis Rodriguez's legacy have been had he gotten two of the three of those split decisions? You know, think about this, Jack. When he won the title from Griffith, he fought him three months later and lost it back to him, and Rodriguez never got the title back. Think about how overshadowed who he is. And if you look at Rodriguez's record, he and Griffith fall off, fought the same guys. Yeah. All the guys I just named, you, that Rodriguez, if, if I lined them up, I'll bet he fought 80% of those guys. Yeah. There's another guy that gets lost in the shovel who was a great, great fighter. But, you know, Rodriguez... I forget which fight it was, but one of those fights, many people fought, thought that he won, and they should have been two and two. But Rodriguez had this style, Jack, to give Griffith trouble. If you watch their fights, he would box outside for a while, then he would fight in a spurt, then he would back off. And I always sense that Griffith, as evenly matched as they were, he never quite had a read on Louis' style. But Rodriguez is one of the all-time greats, too. Another guy that would give Robinson a fight. Oh, I just don't let, think me, let me tell you, Rodriguez later would move up to middleweight and beat a bunch of top-notch guys, and then he finally gets a shot against Nino Benvenuti. And was winning the fight. He was winning the fight. And in the 11th round, he seems on the verge of winning the title, and Benvenuti then produces the greatest moment of his career. That left One hook. Big hook, left hook, knocked Rodriguez out cold. Rodriguez later said it was a lucky punch, but his trainer, Angelo Dundee, said very eloquently it was a champion's punch. You know, like to come out of nowhere, you know, to nail Rodriguez. And, you know, it's just hard luck. But the good thing, at least Rodriguez won the world championship. At least, you know, he wasn't deprived of that, you know, thankfully during his career. Because you have a number of great fighters who just don't quite get there. They have some bad luck. And when they do get their opportunity, the circumstances aren't going to uh, favor them at all. Also, Griffith was the first fighter to knock down Dick Tiger. Dick Tiger was only knocked down four times in his career. Right. After Emil Griffith knocked him down, he, he got him to go to one knee, basically, with a flurry of punches. Clean knockdown. But then Bob Forster, of course, knocked Tiger out cold. And then Tiger, at the end of his career, two knockdowns against Frankie DePaula, but Tiger won that fight. But uh, judge, but listen, Harold Letterman, too, mentioned this. And this was interesting with Emil Griffith. And then we're going to maybe move on from, you know, from Emil, who gave us so many memories. Uh, someone was doing a magazine story years ago on a 25-year period of great welterweights. They did an imaginary tournament. I think it was about 25 years. And then it would be Sugar Ray Leonard, Felix Trinidad, Tommy Hearn, Shea Mosley, Jose Napolis. And we had to, myself and two other writers had to make predictions. Best two out of three guy would, guys would advance. And I was talking with Harold Letterman about that tournament where I had to give my predictions. And even though Emil Griffith wasn't in it, Harold Letterman says out of nowhere, without me mentioning Emil's name, Emil Griffith would have beaten all of them. And that like threw me for a loop. You know, you're talking about Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns in there. I don't, I can't say I agreed with that. Okay. But just the But idea, he's right there. Griffith was so revered. Let's put it this way. He would have competed with them and it would have been a heck of a tough fight. You know, a 15 round against Sugar. No one beats him easy, Jack, at 147 again. He's in the top five or six. Leonard beats him nine rounds to six, nine, five, one, you know. Exactly. That's how I see it. Leonard gets back to his dressing room and goes, man, I don't want to fight this guy again. Like he mumbles out, you know. Jack, think about this. I think think it's pretty much unanimous that Griffith, I mean, other than maybe Ali and Edder Joffrey, was Griffith the best, next best fighter of the 60s? You could argue, and you could talk about Carlos Ortiz, too. You know, Frank, okay. speaking, speaking of rivalries, in the beginning of the show, we were having a little fun teasing one another. 
and I was saying, no, the New York competition is tougher than Philadelphia. I'm talking about the prof- yeah, and we were having a little fun, but on the professional ranks, we heard all about these Philly gym wars. You witnessed them firsthand, and I'm familiar with the New York gyms, but in the New York gyms, the fighters would work with one another more, but it depends on the personality. Certain fighters didn't know how to hold back, like a Jerry Cooney didn't really know how to hold back. It wasn't in his DNA in the gym. He wasn't a good guy to spar with, okay? Is it true what they said about these Philly gym wars? Were they myths or not? Jack, from what I can tell, it's true. I saw Michael Spinks and Kwawi box maybe 50 rounds, and it looked like the Thrill Manila. In fact, the worst round of their sparring was more exciting than the best round of their fight. Braxton and Jerry Martin used to go at it. I mean, yeah, most of the time it was like that. It would start out slow, but once somebody got in with something good, you know, all bets were off, and that and, and that would be the case, at least in for the five years I trained in Philly from 77 to 82. That would be my take on it and when i went to other gyms like the Pesh young gym 23rd pal frankfurt pal it was the same thing oh yeah this guy he's just warming up he he wants to go easy and next thing you know he's taking your head off ben serrano did that to me earl hargrove tried to do that to me curtis parker used to do it all the time caveman lee yeah they were worse wow you know i that would be a great i i love to compare what went on in those Philly gym wars to what went on at Crank, which I never got to witness too, because I hear they could have, they went at it a bit, you know, harder. Well, we've seen the film of some of the sessions and we know that it's true. Yeah, Matthew Saad Muhammad, did you see him sparring? I saw him spar. I never sparred him in the days I saw him sparring. He was going easy that day, those days. Said so that's ironic. So Matthew Saad Muhammad. The ultimate warrior inside the ring. No one wanted to exchange and go to war as much as Saad Muhammad. Even Dwight Muhammad Khalid and Dwight Braxton, he would at times like to box in the ring. It wasn't always just opening up. But Matthew Saad Muhammad, he like, if you allowed him to, he'd go to war right off the bat. You know, and it's funny how he changed his style, Jack, because he lost a decision to Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. And after that, he goes, I got to take it out of the judge's hands. Then he started knocking everybody out. And I don't know if you've ever talked to Russell Peltz about this. Did you, were you at the first fight with him and Marvin Johnson? Uh, no. At the Spectrum in 77? No, no. no I Jack, it's, it may be the best fight I ever saw live. Better than Yaki Lopez? I think so, Jack. And that was a great fight too. But I think the first Marvin Johnson side fight could be the best fight I ever saw live. And Russell Pelt says, to this day, it's the best fight he's ever seen live. I don't know how Saad survived. And then he also fought, remember Richie Cates? Oh, yeah. Fought him at the Spectrum. Cates hit Saad with a right hand at the end of the fourth round, and he did a pirouette, and he fell. I was at that fight, and I said, it's over. It's over. Didn't Cates have some real bad luck? It looked like he could be could have maybe won the light heavyweight championship against Victor Galendez. Well, we know what happened. He got, he got shafted out there and then they stopped the fight with the cut. I believe was it the second fight, but yes, case was another guy that was really a killer too. But look at that. Look at that block back then. Look at that light heavyweight block back yeah. then with those Philly guys. If you think about Spinks, Kwawi, Eddie Mustafa, Yaki Lopez, Marvin Johnson, even Rossman was was in the mix there. That was the baddest block in the neighborhood back then. But Saad, yeah, he is the ultimate, ultimate Philly fighter. I love Saad. Nicest guy, you know this, nicest guy could ever meet. It's a shame he, you know, it, it ended for him the way it did. But, boy, he was fun to watch. Yeah, well, you know, certain guys age gracefully. And let's face it, the greatest fighters, if they're going to continue to fight, they're going to have a big fall. They're going to be losing to guys who would hardly have been competitive with them in their in their. Prime. That happened with Saad. Think of the star Saad would be today, Jack. Saad, but when Saad fell from you know 
the top echelon. I mean, he really fell. I mean, he that was a free fall. I mean, uh, after Braxton, you know, it was over. Certain fighters like a Pinnell Whitaker, they're gonna, you know, kind of slip little by little by little, but they're still gonna be good, you know. And then at the very end, and then they retire. I mean, they can always kind of handle themselves, be competitive. They're not embarrassing themselves in any way, shape, or form. But I, I remember asking Saad about that the week he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in Canastota, New York. Why did you fight on so long? You lost so many fights to guys who would have beaten. And there was a tear in his eye saying, yeah, you know, I don't know why I did that. You know, like, yeah, regrets. But you want to know the truth of the matter. You know, a lot of times it comes down to finances, you know, right. but, not, but not always. You get the feeling there are a lot of fighters out there. If they weren't getting paid, they'd still want to fight. They'd still want to go to training camp. You know, it's what they do. It's not just the money. You know, some guys need the money, but it's not just that. Because, I mean, why do fighters get into boxing in the first place from when they're kids, teenagers, you know, because it's something they want to do. You know, that's the sport that they get involved uh, with. So, yeah, side side needed money, Jack. Nobody wanted to train him because they don't want to see him get hurt. And to follow up what you just said, think about this. Think about this. Yeah. Perhaps he's in the conversation of maybe the top five or six most successful fighters ever financially. Sugar Ray Leonard, he never came back because he needed money. He came back because he needed the spotlight. And he yeah. couldn't take being away from it. And he look how he lost in his last two fights. He didn't need money. He stole, he's worth $150 million today. He just said, I'm a fighter. That's what I do. And that's who I am. Yeah, I can golf and shoot baskets and play tennis. Fighting is who I am. And that's what I do. And he came back. Well, you know, it's more than just the competitive urge. I feel... You need the limelight to feel special. You like the excitement of the big fight. You like to walk by and have people point at you, make comments. Oh, there's so and so. Okay, it's. Uh, I think that plays like a. They get that rush on a big night. Remember, Leonard did it with Hagler. Didn't need the money. Wanted the challenge, and that's what it was about. And then when he got that taste again, he couldn't walk away. That would have been the perfect time for him to retire. He couldn't walk away. No, no. I mean, you're away from it. Like when you're a former champion, it's usually not the same unless you're an iconic champion. A Muhammad Ali's always going to be iconic. He doesn't need it. Mike Tyson's iconic right now. Okay. For whatever reason, it's just what it is. Floyd Mayweather, you could sense, needs the limelight because that's why he fought those exhibition matches just to be out there to be, you know, he's looking for ways to be in the news. He doesn't right. want to, he has incredible wealth, supposedly, as long as he's held on to his money. He could live in his mansion, do what he wants, go on vacations, wherever, but it's not the same. You want people, you know, like to point to you in a way. Floyd needs the attention, Jack. He needs the attention. He's dude. all about that. Right. And, and he doesn't care if it's bad or good. He just wants the attention. Right. And you can only keep it going like for so long. You know, various reasons why they came back. Joe Lewis needed the money. Ali, it was a combination, the money, and he liked the attention. He liked to shock the world. He wanted to shock the world again, you know. After Foreman Jack, I don't, he, he didn't really want to fight, but he said, they're paying me too much money to retire. And he wanted to make up some of the money he lost in the 60s at the back end of his career, and we see what it did to him. But he said, they're, they're paying me too much. I can't retire. Yeah, we're, we're going to be wrapping it up soon, Frank, when our producers put on the two-minute warning that they put on about a minute ago. Next week, I guess, uh, we're going to analyze who we think the fight of the year should be. You know, it's all a matter of opinion. And, uh, and you know, we could argue, too. You, you said something that we're going to debate next week that's not time, that you would never give – you don't like giving the fight of the year award to someone who's only fought once. But you got to fight more than once, Jack. I'm going to call you out on smoking Joe Frazier beating Ali in 1971. I bet you're going to come up with a waiver maybe. Well, we'll both discuss that next week. But I'm sure you've well, got I'll a give lot. You, here, we'll think about, I'll give you one thing to think about, Jack, on that. Smoking Joe didn't win just one fight, though. He won the biggest fight of all time. And on that, he gets a pass. Okay. 
Okay, so till next week, Frank, I had a ball talking boxing with you. And thanks to everyone who tuned in and made comments. Uh, see you all next week. Merry Christmas.